0: WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Donald Bartholomew's story, Chablis, which was published in The New Yorker in 1983.
1: This dog thing is getting to be a big issue. I said to my wife, well, you've got the baby. Do we have to have the damn dog, too? The dog will probably bite somebody or get lost.
0: The story was chosen by Edgar Carrot, who has been publishing his own stories in the magazine since 2011. His memoir, The Seven Good Years, will be published by Riverhead Books in June. Hi, Eckar. Hi. So do you know you are the fifth person to choose a story by Donald Barthemy for this podcast? Why do you think that is? Why is he so popular with writers?
1: Well, I think that, that they're fun to read out loud. There are many stories that I love, but I wouldn't dare to read for a podcast because it would seem like that, you know, it doesn't work as well as you see it in paper and with Bartholomew's stories, many times it's a voice. It's not even a plot, you know. There is a voice there, and the voice kind of creates this universe. And it gives you this uh, illusion that if you just speak out the right voice, then you can read the story, and the story will also become a little bit your story, because it will be your diction and your pronunciations that will fill up those little gaps in the stories. You read it, you slightly own it too.
0: How did you first start reading Bartholomew? Is he widely read in Israel?
1: No, actually not. Uh, I always mention him when I teach creative writing classes, and people don't know him uh, very well in Israel. And I'm sad for that. I think it was just unlucky with his publishers here. I actually came across this story. It was the first bartholary story I've ever read. And if I remember correctly, I've read it in the New Yorker. I was someplace overseas, and there were some magazines, and I just kind of read it, and I never heard about him before, and I've read a story and there was something about it that kind of captivated me because I think there is something in this story that has a very, now 30 years later, I can say a very Louis C.K. effect because all the time the emotion of the protagonist toward his wife, his daughter, the dogs that he will or won't buy for her, is always bursting with emotions, but this emotion can be one second, a negative emotion, and the other... A positive one. You really have this feeling of of somebody who seems to be very static, but at the same time, there are two great powers pressing to opposite directions.
0: Right. So it's the conflicted emotion of the story that catches you.
1: Yes, and also the fact that you really have the feeling that the story is improvised. You really have the feeling that one sentence leads to another. This could be an illusion, you know. I know that many times those stories that seem so nonchalant are the stories that you work the hardest on. Right. It's like owning a stonewashed jeans, you know, then you just <laughs> want to wear those trousers that will look old and ragged, and nobody cares how they look like, and these are usually the most expensive jeans <laughs> in the store.
0: So the, the story only takes up one page in the magazine. It's very short. A lot of Bartholomew stories are around that length, and and you also write stories that are very short in this kind of range sometimes. What do you think is the attraction of writing stories at this length?
1: When you write a long, short story, it's not that different from writing a novel because uh, you have to design the story. You have to have some kind of blueprint. You have to know where you're heading. It's very much like navigating. But when you write a real short story it works differently. It's it's much more like surfing. You take your board, you go into the water, you wait for a wave, and then you jump on the board. And the only thing you're trying to do is not to fall off the board. You really don't <laughs> ask yourself, where are, am I heading? Where will it end? What am I trying to say? You just say, if I'll keep the tone, the tone will take me somewhere. And I don't know how much fun it is to read those stories, but it's an amazing feeling to write them because you really feel that you're not constructing something. It's like something that kind of jumping out of your forehead.
0: So do you think that when Barthami sat down to write it, he knew it was going to be this length?
1: When you surf, and somebody would ask you, how long are you going to surf before you fall? (laughs) Then you say, wow, you know, I hope for a month, you know. (laughs) Tell, Tell mom I'll be late. But at some point, it just kind of, you know, the wave ends, or there is a different angle, and you just kind of, fly off and you find yourself somewhere. It's really, you don't plan, you don't do anything, but, but when the story kind of exhausts itself, it just ends.
0: Hmm. Well, this will all make more sense after the story, so let's hear the story now. Here is Edgar Carrot reading Chablis by Donald Barthamy.
1: Chablis. My wife wants a dog. She already has a baby. The baby's almost two. My wife says that the baby wants the dog. My wife has been wanting a dog for a long time. I've had to be the one to tell her that she couldn't have it. But now, the baby wants a dog, my wife says. This may be true. The baby is very close to my wife. They go around together all the time, clutching each other tightly. I ask the baby, who is a girl, Whose girl are you? Are you daddy's girl? The baby says, Mama. And she doesn't just say it once, she says it repeatedly. Mama, Mama, Mama. I don't see why I should buy a $100 dog for that damn baby. The kind of dog my baby wants, my wife says, is a Karen Terrier. This kind of dog, my wife says, is a Presbyterian, like herself and the baby. Last year the baby was a Baptist. That is, she went to the Mother's Day Out program at the First Baptist twice a week. This year, she's a Presbyterian, because the Presbyterians have more swings and slides and things. I think that's pretty shameless, and I've said so. My wife is a legitimate lifelong Presbyterian, and says that makes it okay. Way back, when she was a child, she used to go to the First Presbyterian in Evansville, Illinois. I didn't go to church because I was a black sheep. There were five children in my family, and the males rotated the position of black sheep among us, the oldest one being the black sheep for a while while he was in his DWI period or whatever, and then getting grayer as he maybe got a job or was in the service, and then finally becoming a white sheep when he got married and had a grandchild. My sister was never a black sheep because she was a girl. Our baby is a pretty fine baby. I told my wife for many years that she couldn't have a baby because it was too expensive. But they wear you down. They are just wonderful at wearing you down. Even if it takes years, as it did in this case. Now I hang around the baby and hug her every chance I get. Her name is Joanna. She wears ashkash overalls and says no, battle, out, and mama. She looks most lovable when she's wet, when she's just at a bath and her blonde hair is all wet and she's wrapped in a beige towel. Sometimes, when she's watching television, she forgets that you're there. You can just look at her. When she's watching television, she looks dumb. I like her better when she's wet. This dog thing is getting to be a big issue. I said to my wife, well, you've got the baby. Do we have to have the damn dog too? The dog will probably bite somebody or get lost. I can see myself walking all over our subdivision asking people, Have you seen this brown dog? What's its name? They'll say to me. And I'll stare at them coldly and say, Michael. That's what she wants to call it, Michael. That's a silly name for a dog. And I'll have to go looking for this possibly rabid animal and say to people, have you seen this brown dog, Michael? It's enough to make you think about divorce. What's that baby going to do with a dog that it can't do with me? Rump? I can ramp. I took her to the playground at the school. It was Sunday and there was nobody there and we rumped. I ran and she tottered after me at a good pace. I heard her as she slid down the slide. She grouped her way through a length of big pipes, they have there set in concrete. She picked up a feather and looked at it for a long time. I was worried that it might be a diseased feather, but she didn't put it in her mouth. Then we ran some more over the perched bare softball field and through the arcades that connects the temporary wooden classrooms which are losing their yellow paint to the main building. Joanna will go to this school someday if I stay in the same job. I looked at some dogs at Pets a Plenty, which has birds, rodents, reptiles, and dogs, all in top condition. They showed me the Cairn Terriers. Do they have their prayer books? I asked. This woman clerk didn't know what I was talking about. The Cairn Terriers run about two ninety-five per, with their papers. I started to ask if they had any illegitimate children at lower prices, but I could see that it would be useless and the woman already didn't like me. I could tell. What is wrong with me? Why am I not a more natural person like my wife wants me to be? I sit up in early morning at my desk on the second floor of our house. The desk faces the street. At 5.30 in the morning, the runners are already out, individually or in pairs, running toward rude red health. I'm sipping a glass of galoshably, with an ice cube in it, smoking, worrying. I worry that the baby may jam a kitchen knife into an electrical outlet while she's wet. I've put those little plastic plugs into all the electrical outlets, but she's learned how to pop them out. I've checked the Crayolas. They made the Crayolas safe to eat. I called the head office in Pennsylvania. She can eat a whole box of Crayolas and nothing much will happen to her. If I don't get the new tires for the car, I can buy the dog. I remember the time, 30 years ago, when I put Herman's mother's Buick into a cornfield on the Beaumont Highway. There was another car in my lane, and I didn't hit it, and it didn't hit me. I remember veering to the right and down into the ditch and up through the fence and coming to rest in the cornfield and then getting out to wake Herman and the two of us going to see what the happy drunks in the other car had come to, in the ditch on the other side of the road. That was when I was a black sheep, years and years ago. That was skillfully done, I think. I get up, congratulate myself in memory, and go in to look at the baby.
0: That was Edgar Carrot, reading Chablis by Donald Bartholomew. The story was published in The New Yorker in 1983, and is included in the collection 40 Stories, which is available in paperback from Penguin Classics.
1: The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple.
0: There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez,
1: Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there.
0: So, Eckhart, the story is this kind of internal monologue. This man is arguing... With himself about his wife and his child. What was it in this particular narrative that really struck a nerve with you?
1: Well, I think there was something about his yearning to be a part of his daughter's word. And I think that every parent can feel that, but what makes it so special is that it's an attempt to be a part of, of his daughter's word when she's two years old. <laughs> It's not the teenage uh, daughter that, you know, that comes up late and smokes cigarettes. It's just the fact that there are so many things that his wife can do. There is this kind of feeling of intimacy that comes from the the fact that, you know, that maybe, I don't know, the mother breastfeeds her or there's some more natural connection. And the fact that I think that the protagonist is neurotic (laughs) and seemingly a bit aggressive and drinks a lot, maybe also affects his relationship with his daughter, but this yearning just, you know, to be with somebody. There's something so innocent in this context and at the same time so uh, captivating. Yeah. And also I think the ending of the story is amazing.
0: So you think he fell off the surfboard at just the right time?
1: Yes, for sure, because there's something in the story that if you think about it, kind of describes all kinds of interaction. It goes to a pet story. He asks how much a dog costs, he cracks a joke, you know, the clerk doesn't get it. But really the the high point is the scene where he was young, he drove a car when he was drunk, he almost hit somebody, but no harm was done. And this seems to be like some kind of a high point in his life. The idea is that he drove drunk and avoided an accident, which objectively doesn't seem as if he got, you know, into... It's not like becoming a senator or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something in the, the way that he describes it, you know, the fluidity of all this action, this kind of feeling of being alive that you really identify with this moment. And I think that it's almost as poetic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There is a feeling about that writing this story is, is like driving and then somebody's in your lane and then you steer the wheel. And in the end, you know, you got there. No harm's down. He's, he's a proper father and a pretty okay uh, husband and he's not a black sheep anymore and he keeps his job. Like he would wish to have a better one so he could uh, send his daughter to a better school, but everything's okay. You know, he managed it so far.
0: I mean, in a way, the whole story is about avoiding accidents. Yes. He keeps doing all these things that he didn't really want to do. You know, he had a child. He didn't really want to have a child. He's probably going to get a dog, though he doesn't really want to have a dog, but he, it's somehow still Okay.
1: Yeah, because he got the child that he didn't want to, but he loves her and he probably liked the dog too. Yeah. And also there is this kind of thing that in his present day, all the time he's stressed about the daughter and I think he's stressed about money. And I think that the nostalgia is for, for that time where he wasn't stressed and he took an unnecessary danger and he still managed it.
0: Right. So he's out there driving drunk or the other person's driving drunk and he's not at home sticking plastic things in electrical sockets so his baby won't get electrocuted.
1: Yes. I think that when we become a parent, we always have this kind of moments that we say, you know, to our partner, what have become of us? Look at us. What are we doing here? You know? <laughs> and I think that it's something very natural. You know, I think it's in nature's ways that you become more protective when you have a child. But I can imagine how somebody, it makes him feel kind of, I don't know if old, but defeated. Mm -hmm. And how he remembers this kind of victory. And I think that usually, let's say, the cliche victory would be, you know, hitting a home run. But here, like, this great moment is that moment in which he avoided, you know, a crash. He avoided hurting other people. He kept himself in one piece, not to mention Herman's mother's Buick.
0: <laughs> and he says it was skillful. It was something he did well. He takes pride in what he did.
1: Yes, and as a bad driver, you know, I can tell you that I would have done worse for sure.
0: <laughs> well, going back to what, something you said earlier about the way that he thinks about this child and the child's attachment to her mother, there's something a little funny about that. He's jealous, in a way, he's jealous of how much the baby likes his wife, and he's jealous about the idea that a dog might be more fun than him. You know, he's like, I can romp. <laughs> you
1: know, I, did, <laughs> I romped
0: the other day, I was good at it, you know. So he's looking for things he's good at. And what he comes up with was he was good at avoiding that accident.
1: Yes, yeah, so this means that, you know, that him and the baby can have fun. He can take her in his car, get drunk, and avoid accidents. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and just the fact that he, he calls up the Crayola factory or the Crayola headquarters to find out if it's okay for his daughter to eat a crayon. You know, he's he's so anxious now.
1: Yes, and I think that this anxiety scares him. And I think there is something in his anxiety that kind of made him resist having a child and now makes him resist having a dog. He talks about money, he talks about other things, but this idea of kind of not taking risks is something that, you know, that makes a big difference between his present life and uh, his life when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is this sentence when he looks at this kind of the school that they're playing in and the school doesn't look that good. And he says that this is the school his daughter will go to if he'll stay in the same job, mm-hmm. you know. And there is something about it that even there, like, you know, he doesn't say to himself, "I, you know, I have to get a better job or I got to do something. You know, you still have this kind of a a defensive stance against life.
0: Right. He says earlier in the story, he's he's sort of frustrated with himself for not being a more natural person. Do you think that he is natural?
1: Well, you know, I think it's nice. If I quote quote it correctly, he says, why can't I be a more natural person like my wife wants me to be? Right. So, of course, you cannot be Natural, like somebody wants you to be, because the moment you do it, because he wants you to be, you stop being. It's not natural, natural. and yeah. and I think that this is kind of like a, a small example of the whole paradox of this story, this kind of things, you know, wanting to flow but to be in control, you know, wanting to be natural so other people will be happy that you're doing what they want you to be. But Sanami knows how to put this into perfect sentences and situation. For example, you know, there is this kind of power struggle between him and his wife regarding the baby Mm -hmm. so it's not only him it's his wife who assumes this kind of position of an interpreter like she knows what the baby thinks like if the baby comes to her then she must know the baby well and so she knows that the baby wants a dog and of course when you read it you say the baby doesn't want a dog she's two years old she doesn't know what she wants but the mother kind of leverages her position. And I think it's all those tiny things that that really are the difference between uh, saying something and articulating it in an ultimative way, you know. And I think that uh, Bartholomew really hits it right on the spot. You can't be more exact than that.
0: Well, and also the wife thinks that she knows what religion dogs are, what denomination <laughs> they are. Yeah. So, I mean, who's the unnatural person here? <laughs> <Like>. <laughs>
1: Yes, and, and also this kind of a, uh, I think the kind of uh, debates that they have about kind of moving from a one church kind of a uh, to another just so there will be more slides, you know, mm-hmm. if it's legitimate or not legitimate. And I think that, you know, all those kind of things, they look strange, but they resonate all the kind of decisions and complexities that all of us have, you know. In Tel Aviv, sometimes the school is decided by the streets that you live in and sometimes, you know, there is a a better school. And there are many people here that fake their addresses. You know, they write an uncle address or a grandmother address, and sometimes they get caught, and it's very unpleasant because they take the kid out of class and he has to go back to <laughs> his natural This, this, this happens class. in Manhattan,
0: too. It's, it's definitely true here.
1: But, you know, usually the parents who do that in Manhattan, they're not Necessarily, people who would shoplift or would be rude to other people, mm-hmm. but somehow, when it comes down to, to your childs, and you find yourself kind of doing things that you wouldn't have done otherwise,
0: yeah, like shopping for a dog,
1: like shopping for a dog. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think it's very honest, you know. I think that you know this is the Louis C.K. trait of this story, and that's also the feeling that you feel as if it's improvised because. He, he talks about the girl and he, he talks about the fact that when she watches TV, then you can look at her and she doesn't notice and it sounds like a good thing. And then he says, you know, actually, when I look at her, she looks kind of dumb. <laughs> this story is
0: surprising to me as a, as a Donald barthemy story because usually we're off in some other universe, you know, where nothing makes sense. And in fact, this is a fairly conventional setup, you know, it's a husband and wife and a kid and they go to playgrounds and they shop for dogs. So I'm wondering what you th- what what you think Bartholomew did with his weirdness in this story, you know, where has he put it? Is it is it this objective assessment that the man offers up of his life?
1: Well well, you know, I can only speculate, but the feeling that I have with many many of Bartholomew's stories that the rational a uh, self aware aspect is almost always there. He's a writer, you know, who's unique and who's emotional, but in the end like many times you feel that the engine comes from the place from which you invent words or from which you have ideas. And here there's something about the stories that it's kind of less from the brains and more more from the guts. Mm-hmm. I feel it's kind of an offbeat story for him. And in a sense, I don't know, it makes it even more revealing being that, because it's not inside the Bartholomew comfort zone. It's something that is a little bit different.
0: Right, and I think it feels very personal. I think it was, in its detail, somewhat true to his situation at the time that he was writing it. But for me, the moment that really hits home is the moment towards the end where he reveals that he's, he's having all these thoughts while he's sitting at his desk drinking Chablis at 5.30 in the morning. He's pointed us to this moment by calling the story Chablis. And suddenly you have to stop and say, wait, he's drinking wine at 5.30 in the morning. Is he up late? Is he up early drinking wine? Is this his breakfast? Is this Has he been up all night worrying? Does he actually have far worse problems than we know? So that's a point in the story that really stops me. I mean, I don't know what you think about it.
1: Well, I think that, you know, that this entire story... Is this moment when you're awake 5.30 in the morning and you're drinking, probably secretly drinking, and there is this kind of vacancy, you know. It's almost for a moment you stop being a player in your world and you're just a spectator. And here it's like somebody who's kind of looking at his life from outside his life, you know. Everybody's asleep now. He's not doing anything. He's not trying to meet a deadline or trying to get to work there is something in this post-moment that is very powerful and again as you said, you know, it also kind of tells us that his life is far from being perfect you know, the fact that he drinks it in the morning and I think that the fact that he drinks Chablis, there's something much less intimidating, let's say if, if the quote is a story scotch <laughs> vodka, hard liquor, you know yeah. it would sound worse, but Our guy is this kind of guy who's really an alcoholic, but he actually drinks a lot of wine. So sometimes it can pass as okay, you know, He can drink it maybe sometimes in the meals. And I think that this feeling of being in two different words is something that you feel very strongly in this uh, story. Those conflicted emotions. They're also even as a drunk, he's not our cliche drunk.
0: Yeah. I mean, you wonder how reliable he is if everything he's told us has been told to us at 5.30 in the morning after drinking Chablis all night?
1: Well, actually, the way I saw it, it's like very much like the Chablis. The cliche would be to set it very late at night. But I can imagine that he's a guy who has sleeping problems, you know, and he actually goes to sleep very early, you know, like 10.30, <laughs> turns off the TV. Then he wakes up, and he always wakes up at 5, and it bothers his wife if he reads, you know, I don't know, because of the light, and he goes to the second floor, and just drink something, it's this kind of a very private moment. And I think all those kind of things can give us this coating of, of a very standard human being, you know, the kind of guys that you wave a to and you don't have anything to gossip about. <laughs> but his life, you know, is far from being perfect.
0: Yeah. But then and then he has this moment of triumph of remembering his skillful accident avoidance. And then he goes in to look at the baby and you feel that sort of everything he's just, told you and gone through is going to be going through his mind as he watches her sleeping. You also wonder if she looks dumb when she sleeps.
1: (laughs) No, I I don't think she looks dumb when (laughs) she sleeps. I think it's only the TV thing, you know. I can say that I often look at my son when he watches TV, and he doesn't look dumb uh, (laughs) when he watches TV, but there is something about this kind of feeling of vacancy sometimes, this Mm -hmm. kind of passivity. And I think that as a parent, it's something that you could make you antagonistic. Like, you know, I mean, you look at it and you say, wow, like I, I saw him playing a ball a moment ago or making up a story or trying to sing a song. And now he just sits there and is not fully present.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there's also the sense that this child goes away from him. He says, are you daddy's girl? And she says, mama, that she's, she's always kind <laughs> of going away. And, and I suppose when she watches TV, she goes away somewhere else.
1: But it's also a gift because she lets him look at her.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's such a density to this story. There's such a compactness. It is about a thousand words. And we get so much about this man and about his life and about his family. When you write at this length, is it difficult to get all of that across?
1: Well, for me, like sometimes you're able to get a lot into one story, and sometimes you don't. And when you don't, you just throw it away, you know. You are not able to do it. Because I really feel that when you write a text that is short, it should feel a little bit like a a Kool-Aid of a story. Something that, you know, that the reader needs to mix with himself so it will become a complete story, to bring something from his imagination, his perception, and only then he'll have a story. If you're just writing something short that is not condensed... Many times it could feel like a real story, only it's really, really little. But I think that there is something about these kind of stories that they should be bursting with energy, even if they are very, very quiet. Like sometimes you have those Carver stories that kind of gives you a feeling that not much is happening, Mm -hmm. but they should have a very, very powerful engine to be that tiny and still have a presence on the page.
0: Right. And I suppose that engine here is his anxiety.
1: And I think also this idea is that his anxiety makes him full of energy, but he's not sure which direction he's heading. He kind of builds an argument, and then he says, you know, if I don't change the tires, I can get her the dog, you know. So so where did that come from, you know? <laughs> so there is a kind of feeling of uh, of really, I think surfing is, is a good thing, because when you surf, you know, the wave sometimes takes They don't take you in uh, in a linear route, you know. They take you to all kinds of places. And the idea is to keep your balance and to stay on top of the board. And if you do that, it's successful, even if in the end you find yourself at the same point in which you've started.
0: Well, thank you so much, Edgar.
1: Thanks. It's been real fun.
0: Edgar Keret's most recent collection of stories, Suddenly a Knock on the Door, was published in 2012. He's the editor with Asaf Gavron of the recent anthology Tel Aviv Noir. You can download more than 90 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of newyorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.